As we come now to God's Word, if you'd like to turn uh, and read with me, you can turn to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. That's Philippians chapter 2. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord God, would you give us undivided hearts? Would you teach us your ways, unite our heart to fear your name? Help us to see what is true in your word so that we might believe. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Philippians. I think your bulletin says Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'll actually back up just a few verses. We know that the chapter and verse markers were later additions into the scriptures. Paul wrote a letter here. It's one whole thing, and sometimes the chapter markers interrupt his flow of thought. So we'll back up a little bit and catch the beginning because this is all together. So I'll start in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. 
So as now as we continue on in our reading through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we've seen over the past few weeks that Paul here is really unfolding the impact of the gospel of Jesus on their lives. So first he's looked at the gospel's impact on his own life, how it affects him, and he said to live is Christ and to die is to gain Christ. And so he says, even in my current situation, no matter how difficult, even though he's now in house arrest in prison, he says, I will not be ashamed. Christ will vindicate me. But then he turns, and last week and now in this week, from himself, thinking about the impact of the gospel on himself, to the thinking of the impact of the gospel on the Philippians. And he told them, as we saw last week, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It's a heavy sentence. But he said, live worthily as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus has really brought you under a new kingship, and now I want you to live that way. I want you to live in a way that's fitting to your new identity, to your new homeland. So part of living worthily, as we saw last week, was faith and suffering. And these two, faith and suffering, show the worth or the value or the significance of the kingdom. Now, one of the biggest marks of living as worthy citizens of Jesus is unity. That one of the biggest ways to show the significance of the kingdom of Christ is to count other people more significant than ourselves. And it's tough to miss Paul's point in this section. If you were following along in your Bible or just listening, I mean, he really hammers it, especially verse 27. Uh, He calls us to one spirit, one mind, that we're standing side by side. And then later he says, I want the same mind, the same love. I want you to be in full accord. This sort of unity is to be true of all followers of Jesus. That if we are really in Christ, we're called to be united to him and to each other. The way that this is expressed, he says, is through humility. And he talks quite a bit about the humility expressed by Jesus, that out of love... Jesus, who is eternal God, one with the Father, humbled himself and took on human flesh. And that section we'll have to save for next week. There's just so much in there, it'll take that long for us to unpack it. This week, however, we want to look at what that unity looks like for us. What is this unity and humility? And and Christ is the one who models this for us. But he doesn't only model it for us. He doesn't just show us how to do it and then kind of scoot us on our way and go, there you go, I showed you how, now you do it. Christ actually makes us alive to be able to do this because otherwise we won't. We can't do this because we are of ourselves dead in sin. An illustration of this 
Another small book. Boy, I said I love small books, and I was not kidding. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, uh, was written in uh, the 20th century. I don't know what it says about me that I only seem to mention books from 100 years ago or more. But, um, but in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, uh, A.W. Tozer talks in a chapter about the communion of the saints, which is another way to talk about Christian unity. And he says this, it should be evident that there can be no true Christian sharing unless there is first an impartation of life. An organization and a name don't make a church. 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life, always. He then says, in order to be unified, we have to be made alive, and Jesus is the source of this. Jesus is the giver of life, so we have no hope for unity unless we are made alive in Jesus first. But he, he compares us then to a football team, and I like the image. You know, you don't just make a football team by sticking together 11 dead guys. I don't know that I could watch three hours of a game like that. Uh, but the comparison is fitting to compare us to a football team because Paul actually in this section does something similar. When he says that you're to strive side by side, that's actually an athletic term. I want you to be athletes together, he says. And later in chapter 4, he specifically names some people who are striving side by side, uh, Euodia and Syntyche and Clement which would make a good band, I think, Yodia, Syntyche, and Clement. Those three, he says, are striving side by side with me. In other words, they're athletes with me. He's comparing us as a Christian community to an athletic team. So in a sense, our unity is as if we were on a football team together, that we are striving, pushing Moving the ball down the lines toward the same goal. And that goal is to magnify and honor Christ in our lives. So to do this, we need to be of one spirit, one mind, to have one love around Jesus, just like a football team would have one mind around getting to the end zone. And Paul says when this happens, when we have one mind, that he says it, let's see, where's the line? Uh, this completes my joy, he says in verse 2. That it makes my joy fill up all the way that my cup is now overflowing with joy. So basically, Paul is comparing himself to the coach of this team, who after all the practices, all the weight training, all the drills, and now we're out on the field and, and we're running the game and we're now moving in full accord toward the pride, prize of Jesus. Paul is now watching this and, and just grinning ear to ear, covered in Gatorade like a coach at the end, going, that was good. It completes my joy to see your unity. 
Paul now is calling all of us as Christians by the grace and power of Jesus to this same sort of Christian unity. Now, when we talk about unity, it is vitally important for us. This is part of our life in Jesus. However, Paul does not speak about unity as if it is the ultimate goal of life. He doesn't say, when you breathe your last breath, whenever that is, I just want you to be able to say that you got along with everybody, that you were nice. Nobody, nobody thought bad things about you. We know life is more than that. If we make unity the main thing, it will lead us down the wrong path. We can see this played out in the cultural idea of tolerance. Now, sometimes when we talk about tolerance, we, we mean kindness or patience when we disagree with people, and those things are good. Those things are godly, kindness and patience. But often when people talk about tolerance, they don't mean just being patient. They mean, I want you to fully accept all things. That's not what Paul means by unity. So some, if we interact culturally about these things, some will say of faith or religion that you have to be fully accepting of all religions. That, that any faith that claims to have some truth that others don't have, that must be wrong. And so if Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's being too exclusive, and so he must be wrong. Jesus is being too divisive, too intolerant, and he's not being inclusive enough. And so some will say, we need to be united, and Christ is dividing us. Some will also say that anytime we try to make an absolute claim to truth, as the Bible says, some things are true and some things are untrue, that that claim must be wrong because it's not tolerant. So when the Bible claims that sex is only to be in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, that's too exclusive. It must be wrong. Or when the Bible claims that man and woman are both made in the image of God, bearing his divine image, and yet there are differences between man and woman, that's too intolerant and it must be wrong. Or when the Bible claims that all things are created by God and, and we're not just a product of nature or chance, that that's not inclusive enough and it must be wrong. Tolerance would say that these things are divisive. And so we need to set them aside for the sake of unity, and then we'll be in harmony with one another. Then we can be one if we set them aside. But you can see the irony, I think, in this mindset. That there is a radical intolerance in this tolerance. There's a radical intolerance in tolerance. That to say what the Bible says is wrong 
is just as intolerant as they claim the Bible is. They're saying, you're wrong to say this. These things are right. Uh, Tolerance is then basically creating an entire new religion and trying to compel us to follow that. To say everything is acceptable or must be acceptable is actually calling other things unacceptable, pushing others out. So I think you can see in this that unity by itself, unity on its own cannot be the ultimate goal because unity as a philosophy eventually unravels. In fact, according to the Bible, some disunity is good. Some disunity is good or at least necessary. Even in Philippians, as Paul's encouraging the Philippians toward unity in his letter, in this very section, he talks about their opponents and that they're not supposed to be frightened by them. He assumes that there are some that are against them. And and later in the letter, in chapter 3, he talks about uh, a group of folks that he calls the dogs, the evildoers, and, and those who mutilate the flesh. And he he says, I don't want you to join with those people, that there ought to be some disunity there. Even when he talks about communion in 1 Corinthians, we see a similar thing that I think is helpful for us. So communion, when we gather together before the Lord's table uh, for his body and blood and the bread and, and the fruit of the vine, we are brought into union a sense, a felt sense of the union with Christ and union with each other. It's our common union. That's why we call it communion. But even in talking about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, uh, verse 18. Paul writes, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So in the middle of his discussion about communion, he brings up these uh, factions and divisions. And generally, splits like this or factions are not good. But you'll notice here he says... There must be factions among you, or we could translate that, it is necessary that there would be a split among you. Why? He says, so that those who are genuine would be recognized. In other words, there was a controversy going on in that church. Some were saying one thing, some were saying the other, and he says there must be some sort of division so that you can see which of those is true. In the midst of controversy, a genuine believer, a Christian, those who are really following Christ, are not called to just go with the flow. We're not called to just shrug and pretend everything's okay. And we're not always called to negotiate a compromise. Let's meet somewhere in the middle At times, the Christian is called to stand for truth 
even at the cost of division, even at the cost of a split at times. This doesn't mean we're nasty about this. I mean, Jesus, remember if he's our model for this, humbled himself to death to save his enemies. So we don't want to be nasty in that division. We also don't want to try to be antagonistic. Christ was the embodiment of patience and kindness and love. And we don't want to be arrogant and go, I know all true things. Remember, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, not us. He's the authority, so there is chance that we also might be wrong. Still, in all of these things, the Christian is called humbly but firmly to hold fast to truth which makes some disunity sometimes necessary. So there's one side of the coin that disunity is sometimes good or necessary. On the flip side of the coin, some unity is bad. There are some expressions of being united that are bad. Uh, Luke, in chapter 23, mentions this strange little sentence in the middle of of the trial of Jesus. So as Christ is being condemned before he is crucified and then three days later resurrected, he bounces between Pilate and Herod and goes through multiple trials. And in that experience, Luke notes this. Let's see, Luke chapter 23. I suppose I'll start in verse 10 to get to the part where I want. Luke 23, verse 10. The chief priests... And the scribes stood by vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now here's the sentence we want. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And he moves on. It's an interesting sentence for Luke to throw in there. He just mentions Pilate and Herod. They they didn't get along, but something about the trial or the condemnation of Jesus made them set aside their differences, and instead of being enemies, they became friends. They're brought together in unity over the death of Jesus. That's a bad unity And we can see lots of forms of bad unity, even in a modern context. Uh, One very extreme example are are the numbers of of white nationalists we've seen in the news, or white supremacists. Those who march together and carry torches together and chant together and share the same idea. They are brought together over the idea that by being white, they are better. They're unified, but that's a bad unity. So we pull these together, I think you could see that unity can be either bad or good. 
And the thing that makes unity bad or good is what the people are unified around. That's the key to unlocking whether it's bad or good. What are they unified around? So Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, is not just calling them to general unity. Whatever else happens, just stick together and be unified. He's actually calling them to a particular kind of Christian unity. He says that the Christian is to be of one spirit, of one mind, of one love, be of one accord. That mind then, he says in verse 5, is to be the mind of Christ. In other words, the Christian is not just seeking unity itself. The Christian is seeking Jesus. That we'd be centered on what Jesus thinks about. That we'd be centered on what Jesus focused on. That we'd be centered on how Jesus chose to live his life. And as we center on that, we find that we become united in Jesus. Unity, then, is the effect of seeking Christ. It's amazing to me, as a sidestep here, it's amazing to me how many marriage books are out there. I mean, it's staggering. Makes you think marriage must be hard or something. I don't know. And marriage is hard, so there's these books and people are trying to figure out how to strengthen their marriage. And so all these books then are are trying to teach us how to strengthen our marital union. But most of these books, not all, but most, forget that we actually need to be unified about something. Unified on something, something that's different than just staring each other right in the face or focusing just on the relationship. Instead of focusing on the unity of the relationship itself, we need to focus on growing in the mind of Christ to center on Jesus. And if both people in a marriage are doing that, we'll find as we draw closer to Christ that we actually do end up drawing closer together. That's a good thing for us. But if only one is doing that and the other is not growing in the mind of Christ, it still is even worth pursuing the mind of Christ because we'll still find that as we grow closer to him, we will grow in loving another as Christ loves. Do you want to see greater unity in your marriage? You must learn the mind of Christ. Do you want to see greater unity in your friendships? You must learn the mind of Christ. Do you want to see greater unity in your country? You, Christian, must learn the mind of Christ. Do you want to see greater unity in your church? We must learn the mind of Christ. 
This is how unity is produced in us, especially as a church. Our primary gathering is not just to look at each other. We don't come here on a Sunday morning just to support each other, although I think we also do that, and that's good. We come here together to worship God. And that actually builds into our unity. We see that even in the Old Testament. Uh, There's a series of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Uh, There's about a dozen or so of them. The Songs of Ascents were part of the annual festival gathering of, of the Jews, God's people. They would come together in Jerusalem to celebrate, often eat together. There were particular things, and they would gather specifically to praise God. And one of these songs of ascent, Psalm 133, then in talking about praising God, talks about the effect of that in our unity. This is Psalm 133, a song of ascent of David, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down onto the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. As David writes here about unity, he compares it to oil, dripping down the beard onto the clothes. That sounds like a messy eater to me. Maybe I think that way because I have a young child. But uh, the, the effect there is this was the sign of the priests, that they would be anointed, their heads would be dripped with oil, and it would run down their face. It was a sign that they were set apart for the work of God. And then he compares us to being like dew, that, this, that the land is watered, and now it's ripe, for fruitfulness. How good, he says, are these things. These are the the blessings that come with unity that comes in God. Paul mentions just a few more of these particular blessings that come with unity in the beginning of chapter 2. You'll remember them. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, If there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, and all these things cause us to overbrim with joy. He says, this is real life in Jesus. These are the things that come with unity of the mind of Christ. Don't you want that? We do want that. I do. We do. We want to be unified like this through Christ. The last question for us as we ride the wave here to the end, how do we do this? <laughs> what does this sort of unity actually practically look, look like for us? Because we know this sort of unity is not easy. We're hard to live with. I'm hard to live with sometimes. So if we're to see ourselves as a a unified team in Jesus, if we're this uh, football team, and Paul then puts us in in the training room. And so we get a little bit of help from Coach Paul here. 
on this as he's learning it as well, especially I think in verses three and four. We'll look at just a, a few specific things and then, and then we'll end. First, he says in verse three, how not to be unified. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit. I mean, we know nothing will cripple a team faster than that. We've got a hot shot on the team who thinks he's the MVP. That'll crush a team. We know that even the best quarterbacks are nothing without a good line, without good backs, without good receivers. So he says, set aside selfish ambition and set aside conceit. But instead, he says, look, look how we are unified. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count, he said, that's an act of the mind. Basically, he's talking about what we're setting our mind on. What do you pay attention to? He's actually calling us to an active awareness of others. That we would put others in a place that's more significant than ourselves. And you can see that usually on a football team. I mean, even the quarterback, as he bends down to receive the snap of the ball, before he calls for the snap, what does he do? But look down the line. He counts the others more significant. He's just, he's just checking to see uh, where they are. Are they ready? Are they prepared? And so we have to think for ourselves, where are we putting our attention? Do we know more about people that we don't actually know personally? Do we know more about the personal life of the bachelorette or Donald Trump or LeBron James than we do about our neighbors? Are we looking more to global or national things and neglecting those who are right around us? To actually look down the line on either side of us and think, who in this line needs encouragement? Who in this line needs sympathy? Who in this line needs love? So we'll build into the unity of the team. Then he goes on, so that's the case. Consider others more important than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's helpful that he says, don't only look to, to your own interests, but also theirs. It's assumed don't neglect yourself in this process. Because if you're part of the team, what's going on with you actually affects the rest of the team. So do I know the play? <laughs> do I know where I'm supposed to go? Am I ready? Am I prepared? Have I been training? Or am I confused? Am I injured? Am I overheating maybe out here on the field? We cannot get so caught up in paying attention to the needs of others that we entirely neglect our own matters. For the sake of building unity, we actually need to know what's going on with ourselves and to share that with each other. It is not strength to pretend like you're okay if you are about to collapse. 
It is not weakness to ask for help. It's actually building into the unity of the team. Lastly, he says, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <laughs> let each of you is the word. He actually says that word each twice in the Greek, just in case you miss it. Let each of you, each of you, he says. In other words, every one of us is part of this. Paul is calling all of us to actively join in the unity. So, have you been sitting on the bench for a while? What are you doing there? Get up. We need you. We need you to play. We need your help. I need your help. We need you to be actively training, to be actively practicing, to be actually serving out on the field. Now, some will say here, Nathan, I'm not as able to serve as I used to be. I'm tired. I've got a full plate. There's a lot going on. I'm just worn out. And, and I understand that. There are challenges of life and limitations sometimes. But Christian, can you pray? Can you share an encouragement in Christ with another? Can you offer another any comfort in love just by being present with them? As long as you have the breath of the Spirit of Christ in you, you can do those things. So don't waste a moment of the life that you have been given. We all are in this together. And so we're all pursuing building into our unity in Christ so that with one mind and one heart and one voice, we may glorify God, our Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, these things are difficult. But we do ask that you would make us of one mind and one spirit and one love. Would you strengthen our unity as your body? Help us to offer encouragement, comfort, affection, and love. And Lord, would you do this in us in such a way that it would make our joy overflowing in you? Help us to be united in you. And we ask all of this through our head, Christ. Amen.